let's get back in the word. We're going to continue where we left off last week. 1 Samuel. Does anybody have this feeling? Why are we still here? Huh? Can we go on? Can we go on to a new topic or something? Can we go on to a new message, a new series? You hear thoughts like that? You know what I, I want to start by saying? Something needs to change with the way we listen. Not so much the way we preach. Something needs to change with the way we listen. Think about how many messages you've heard and if you actually started doing half of them. I'm saying this to myself, yo. Think about how many messages we've heard and if we just started doing 10% of them. Sometimes we feel, man, I just need that, that next message. I just need that next word. But there are so many words we already receive from God if we would just begin to do them. Can we change the way we listen today? Can you shout amen when you get a word for yourself? I'm not saying just because I'm preaching, you got to hype it up and shout me down and preach instead of me and be louder than me in the mic. But I'm just saying, I just feel like we need to change the way we listen to sermons. I feel like we need to change the way we approach God's word. We need to change the way we do our Bible study. We need to change the way we memorize verses, interns. We need to change the way we do these things because the word hasn't lost power. Somebody said right now we got the most powerful pulpit but the weakest church. They didn't get it. They'll get it. Don't worry. Someone said we live in the time that the pulpit is arguably the strongest it's ever been because we've, we have access to messages and we, we, we are hearing messages that are absolutely incredible, but yet the church is weak. And maybe 20, 30 years ago when the messages weren't so ah and ooh and wow and make me cry and make me laugh, maybe a little bit more simple, maybe a little bit more gospel-oriented, but the church had more influence in its culture, in its day, in the area it was in. I don't know if that's a conclusion, but I think it's definitely a good theory. That good messages don't change things. People who hear the word and obey it begin to change things. I could just say one verse tonight, but if you take that verse and start running with it, your life's going to start changing. Or I could preach a five-point message. Ain't nothing wrong with five-point messages. But if you memorize the five points but don't do what the Word says, ain't nothing going to change. Let's change the way we listen. Let's change the way we listen. Let's just take, take one thing today. If you're, if you're not a note taker, you need to become one. Not for the sake of writing down everything that I say, but something that God says to you that you need to begin to do. Make a, make a note. Make a tab in your... Anybody... Use your note app. Do you even know that is in your iPhone? You have a note app in your iPhone. It's somewhere in the back after all the social media stuff and the picture editing filter stuff that you use. I don't know how many there, there are, but there's a lot of them. And after, after all of that, there's this note app. It looks like, it looks like this. <laughs> you, can't, you can't plan that. Come on, that's just God. You can't plan this kind of stuff. Are you kidding me? It looks like this. And 
I want you to open up that note app and just start taking notes, things that God is speaking to you. I have a bunch of different organized note, note apps. Some of, you, some of you still use notebooks, paper, and pen. Wow, hallelujah. Have mercy on the trees, brothers. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, got, I got a bunch of different note categories in my phone, and one of them is, is just God thoughts that I have. Things that maybe I hear in a message, things maybe that come to me when I'm reading or praying or driving. But I think it's so important, and God is definitely, when I'm saying this, this to you, God is doing this in me, challenging me in this area. To, I even told my wife, I have a desire to go through everything I've preached and to go through everything I've written down in my notebooks. I have notebook after notebook after noteback, noteback, noteback. I started calling them notebacks because I got so many of them. Um, I, notebook after notebook after notebook of notes I've taken in services here at Youth when our young guys, young ministers preach, when our pastors are preaching, when I'm traveling somewhere or we have guests come here. And I got notebook after notebook and I wanted to go through all of them, organize them, and just begin to evaluate what is it that I received in all that note taking that I begin to do in my life. How many things that I received from God that I wrote down in those notebooks that maybe I've already forgotten. We're going to continue talking tonight about pick your fight. You can say pick your fight part two. And I want us to open to Matthew 26 where we left off last week. Should we do a little review or is everybody all good? <laughs> review, please. Uh, Matthew 26, Matthew 26, where Jesus is, he gets betrayed. People come to arrest him, and now he's facing trial. And we left off talking about this because this is a, you can say, a difficult moment. Um, the moment where uh, a, word, a prophetic word is received that the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. This is a moment where the Bible tells us, not we just assume, but the Bible tells us that Jesus is left alone. Now, we talked about last week that David, David fought a fight that was worth fighting, and then he was saved from fighting a fight he didn't need to fight. Right? Thanks to Abigail, the word that she spoke, her wisdom, her just being in, a, in the right place at the right time, being able to hear what the servant had to say, and then knowing what to do after she received. And this is so powerful because we, we get so much information, especially right now, right? There's so much information we receive, but it's a whole other thing to receive that information and then know what to do with it. And Abigail receives information, and she knows what to do. She knows what to do. And she doesn't go to start making stuff. She's got stuff ready. She gathers it all up with the help of her servants, and she starts running towards David to stop him from doing what, he's supposed to, what he was planning on doing, which was killing, killing every male in Nabal's house. And then we go to Jesus, we see this, this picture or this story of David 
becoming a wall of protection around defenseless people. Shepherds like he used to be. They're out shepherding their sheep, shearing their sheep for their master Nabal. And David decides that day and night he's going to become a wall of protection for them and defend them as they are in the mountains shepherding their sheep. Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 26 are not just another shepherd, the shepherd. Every shepherd in the Old Testament pointed to the shepherd, Jesus, in the New Testament. Every lamb that was slain pointed to the lamb that would be slain in the New Testament. And in Matthew 26, Jesus being the shepherd is struck, is captured in a sense. And every sheep scatters and he is alone. Now let's read this from verse 47. Chapter 26, verse 47. We're going to do quite a bit of reading. I hope that's okay. Let's change the way we listen. I hope that's okay. Verse 47. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Thank you so much, team. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, which means teacher, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Another gospel tells us this is Peter. Struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? And in other words, do you think I can't defend myself? He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all, say all, the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's continue. Those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Saiphus the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance at the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus. By the way, this is against the law. To put him to death. But found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none again. But at the last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? You have nothing to say? What is it that these men testify against you, he's asking him. But Jesus, it's really important, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. 
What further need do we have of what further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said altogether, He is deserving of death. They spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you, mocking him. Skip to verse 1 of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So this trial that we just read took place at night. Morning has come. Verse 2, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver. We will skip this part. He ends up committing suicide. Verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say, the same thing he told the high priest. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered, nothing. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Barabbas is exchanged for Jesus in the next verses in verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into Praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they, twi when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. As they came out, they found a man of Serene, Simon by the name. Him they compelled, forced him to bear his cross. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, this is to say place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. This is like a painkiller. When, when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Before we keep reading, I want you to just hold this place of scripture and I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to come right back here to Matthew 27, but just flip with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. For all that is in the world, the lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I've wondered, and I wonder now, and I want to ask, 
Why is it that Jesus was silent before his accusers? Why is it that when people were even set up to speak lies about him, to give false witness or false testimony, why is it even when that was done, Jesus still did not say anything? Why is it that only at the question, if he truly is Christ, the Son of God, he said it is as you say, but to every other accusation, to every, to every other mock, to every laughter, to every, every other thing that was said to him, everything they were making fun of him for, the spitting in the face, the mocking him, why is it that he was silent at everything they did? He was giving himself up for us and taking our sins upon himself. Why was he quiet? He did not say anything when they were falsely accusing him, making fun of him, falsely testifying against him, calling him names, pretending like he's the king and bowing their knees before him. Oh, hail King Jesus. Hail King Jesus. Not, you know, it's a new song we sing, right? Hail, all hail King, right? But they weren't singing the song. And I don't know if we got the song from there, but these people were making fun of him. They, they, they weren't worshiping him. They were making fun of him. They put a robe on him. They twisted thorns and put it on his head. They gave him, they gave him a, like, a, like, a, like a staff, almost like a scepter, like he's, as if he's king. And they begin to mock him. And he is silent. He does not respond to the things they are doing or saying to him. It would be, be one thing when you're just getting made fun of and getting your fingers pointed out, but people are coming up to him, and when he's at the high priest, listen, not jail, he's at the, at the house of the high priest, and in the house of the high priest, you would think they would know how to treat somebody that is going through trial, but they one by one start coming up to him as he's in the middle of this trial by himself, defenseless, and they're coming up to him, and they are slapping him Some in other gospels or some believe that they put something over his head or put something over his eyes. And this is why they're asking him, asking him or telling him, prophesy to us and tell us, who just hit you? And at all of this, he is not responding. I think, and I can only assume, that Jesus knew that his fight was not against people. If we are told in scriptures in the New Testament, listen, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. And so I think if that word was spoken and Jesus is that word, he understood that everything they're doing, everything they're saying, my fight is not against them. How often do we get caught up fighting against people? Fighting against things that are just a distraction to take you away from the fight that is worth fighting. How, 
many people we bicker with? How many people we, we talk with and argue with? And we have Bible debates. Ah, Bible debates are good. But if we spent all our time Bible debating, but not actually debating things that are worth debating, what is the, what is the point? You know, when you know why you're here, you start removing everything that distracts you from accomplishing the thing that God placed you here for. You know why some of us are so distracted? Because we don't know why we're here. We're distracted because we don't know our purpose. We're distracted because we don't know why I'm here. And so anything that's offered to me or anything that comes in my way, I just think it's, it's for me. But can I, can I tell you that not everything that comes into your life is for you? Not every door that opens for you is one that you walk through? Not every opportunity, not every good-looking girl is one that you can date? Not every good-looking guy is one that you can call boyfriend? All the, psh, psh, all, all the psh, if you pay attention, all the pshshshs came from girls. Psh, 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 psh. We're all over the place when we don't know why we're here. But I know and you know and we know all together and those watching online know that Jesus knew exactly why he was here. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what he was, what he was going to face. He knew, he knew the opposition that was coming against him. And my friend, this blows my mind that he no longer had strength in his body to finish his descent up the mountain carrying the cross. No one ever will again face the opposition that Jesus had to face when he was here on earth. He knew that it was not, listen, he did not release words that did not need to be released because he knew it was not these religious men or these people who do not know what they are doing that he is fighting against. Man, that's so easy to preach, so awesome to say, but how often are you in a place you're in a place and you do not realize what you're really up against and you just start swinging. You start swinging at your parents. You start swinging at your life group leader. You start swinging at your church. You start swinging at everybody because you think everything's against you and all opposition is against you. But you need to realize where you are, why you are, and what is it really that is coming against your life. My fight, your fight, the church's fight is not against the LGBT community. QRS, TUZ, the don't. they got so many I forgot all of them. Now, some of these people, yes, they have given themselves over to Satan. They are demonized and they are trying to bring the devil's plans into fulfillment wherever they're at. But our fight is not against these people. This is hard for me even to say. Our fight is not against these people. Our fight is not against Planned Parenthood and those that are in charge of Planned Parenthood and the laws they're trying to pass in the state of Washington. Our fight is against something that is working behind them, working against the kingdom of God, working against the truth of God, working against the church purposefully, and we need to, know, to see and to know what is it that we are fighting against. 
And Jesus is surrounded. Jesus is alone. But he does not release words that he doesn't need to release. Listen, this is so powerful because what he's doing is he is conserving his energy. He is saving his strength for what he actually needs it for. Listen, he does not say an extra word, and yet still, he did not have enough physical strength to finish carrying the cross because there was so much darkness, spiritual forces, principalities, legions, and demons against him as he's going up to Golgotha to be crucified. He didn't have time to say extra things he didn't need to say. He didn't have time to get into fights he didn't need to fight. He didn't, get, he didn't have time to pick up weapons to do stuff that he didn't need to do. He knew why he was there. He knew what he had to accomplish. And because he knew, he began to conserve. Some of you will never have breakthrough until you stop fighting your parents. I talked about this last week, but I want to share it again. There are some things that we need to continue to preach. And it's okay if we preach them every Sunday, but it's something that you need to receive and begin to do in your life. Listen, you know what good sermons have the danger of doing? Is that they're so good that they leave you doing nothing. They're so good that all you can say at the end of them is, wow, that was good. But they don't leave us doing anything. Am I talking to anybody? Anybody here? You got to stop fighting your parents. You're, You're wasting your strength. You're wasting your energy. You're wasting your words, and you will need them. Until you're able to submit to your parents, you will not be able to submit to God. Some of you don't agree with that. I don't care. If you, can't, if you can't submit to someone you see as authority, how do you expect yourself to submit to the one you don't see who is your supreme authority? God, I'm ready to do anything for you. But dad tells you to do one thing and you, lo- you lose your mind. That was an opportunity for you to do something for God. That's crazy. Your parents are not who you're fighting against. Who gave you your parents? (laughs) Yeah! Hey, they're listening. They're listening. That's what I'm talking about. We don't choose our parents, even if, even the Bible says, even, even if your dad is a fool. Don't be, don't be telling him that. <laughs> but even if your dad's a fool, you still must submit, respect, give honor, obey. Much of your spiritual breakthrough in your life will first take place in your home. The things that you face in your household and you begin to overcome, they will be a door to your spiritual growth. 
When you begin to honor truly your mom and dad. Not beat your brother's face in, but love him. Not call your sister names, but buy her some flowers. It just got, just got weird. It just got weird just that quick. That's <laughs> gift, a gift that girls have. just got weird. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, what you begin to do, you know, um, looking back, uh, my, my dad and I started having really, really serious spiritual debates. Um, and some of you know my family situation and why we had these spiritual debates and what was going on in our home. But we had some just hefty, hefty debates and and really our relationship began to revolve around the fact that we always debated about certain things when it came to God and the Bible and Christianity and all this stuff. And I found myself looking back now, why I'm talking about this to you is because I went through this and I found myself on Sunday mornings before I even got married, I was still living at home. I found myself driving to church. It's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. Gripping my steering wheel because I'm so stressed out from the conversation I just had with my dad. I'm so angry. At the same time, I'm so upset with myself. Tears are rolling down my face and I'm asking God, why is this going on? And I'm on my way to church. Because when I was walking out of the house and my dad said something to me and, you know, sometimes, sometimes, I'm a parent now. Sometimes parents will say things to you, and they don't even know why they said it. But one of the things that I noticed is some things, sometimes words would come out of my dad's mouth that I knew weren't him. Later, I knew weren't him. But those words were revealing what was inside of me. And the sooner I came to acknowledge that it's not my dad's evil words spoken against me that's ruining my life. It's what's inciting me that he's provoking when he speaks those words that I need to deal with. Listen, if, your en if the Bible says you can face your enemy and love him, you're telling me you can't face your dad and love him? How Christian are we? And I found myself not to be very Christian because when I was walking out the door and my dad said something to me, literally said something to me that, that would purposely set me off, would purposely make me aggravated. And I knew that wasn't just my dad speaking. That was the devil trying to waste my strength, trying to take my focus, trying to take my energy from the real reason I was walking out of my house and going to church. I was going to church that my family could eventually go to church. He's not the one I'm fighting against. It's not what he's saying that I'm fighting against. There's something behind all of this, and that's what I'm fighting. And like a psycho, I'm driving to church freaking out, crying, God, why? And God began to teach me. The relationship I have with my dad now, I never thought would be possible to have. I literally, my wife is my testimony. I literally can ask, some of you, some of you are gonna have 
your imagination is going to go everywhere right now with what you can do. I could literally ask my dad for anything. Anything, and I would have it. Not because... Because I'm so good. But because there's things that I had to go through that actually when I went through them, became the, became the result of restoration in our relationship. He threatened, he threatened me some scary stuff when I went to Africa my, my first time. I told, told the interns this whole story. When I came back, it's as if it wasn't him talking. He didn't, he didn't remember anything he said, and I got right back to where I was, working, living in the same house, running our business, and everything was cool. And I begin to realize that there's moments that even through my parents, God is testing me. And that the devil is also working, wanting to use even my, the closest people in my life to just get me distracted, get me off of track. Now, it's crazy, if we have the, maybe somebody come up for the keys. It's crazy that in 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says everything the world offers, thank you, Liz, everything the world offers is, is in three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, we're going to focus on the pride of life. The pride of life, for me, the best way to understand, when I be, for, for me, the best way to understand it, the way I understand it, the pride of life is, is the world's offer to you on who you can become. It's to be known. It's to have some kind of status in society. It's to be popular. It's to be somebody of, of certain value or reputation or popularity. It's to have something to be someone and be in a certain place, maybe have authority, maybe have a a great job, maybe have a, an, an awesome title. It's the pride of life. Every person, every person is offered these things by the world. They're offered what they see, they're offered what their body desires, and they're offered the pride of life. The pride of life is you being in a position where it's all about you. Say me. Say me. Not me, you. Say me. Say, yeah, yeah, you. It's all about you. This is why Satan tempts Jesus in these three categories. And one of the temptations is he says, Jesus, it says he takes him to a high place. He shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, I give this all to you. First, he says, this is all mine. Make note. He looks, this is a, this is a spiritual moment. Because he says, he takes them up to a high place. This is not like they traveled the world really quick. He takes them to a high place. And he, he shows them in the spiritual world, the kingdoms and the glory of the world. He says, all of this belongs to me. And I can give it to you if you would just bow down and worship me. The pride of life. This is all that you can have. This is what I will give to you, who you can become, if you would just worship me. I'm not surprised at the fact that suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people in our state. Because every person within himself and herself has a need and a desire to be 
known, to be somebody, to be recognized, to have attention, to have some kind of, some kind of popularity, to have some kind of name. And when people begin to seek these things and don't get it from their friends, don't get it from their family members, don't get it from their mom or dad, and they want to be someone. They can't feel fulfillment. This is why in the corporate world, as soon as you get to a certain position, you are happy for a week and then you can't sleep because you want the next position. You have a good year in your business and you make X amount of money and you can't wait for the following year to break that amount and have even more. And I think, this might surprise you, but it's no surprise to me that I think there's even Christians, young people who know God, who are still tempted by the pride of life. Every single one of us is tempted in some way, in some shape, in some form in this area to be someone. To be known by somebody. To have a check mark given to me from a social media platform instead of being approved by God. To have X amount of followers instead of people that are actually following me in my life as an example. To get everyone scrolling through my page instead of being an example in this time to get people to look in the page of, the God's, of God's word. I could go on for days on everything the social media life and everything the, the, the internet life and everything your private life and everything movies and everything music and everything fashion and style and clothing is trying to offer you to give you something that only God can give you. And when they run, they run and they run and they run and they run, but they grow weary because it's not the Word of God. It's not God's Spirit or God's presence. They're trying to fulfill what the world is offering in the hole they have, but only God can do so. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, a Jewish phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. But immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised 
and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Let's get this straight. Verse 50 and verse 51. Let's connect them together as if it's one story. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn. The veil in Exodus is explained to us that it was four pillars. Four pillars making a wall, making a square. And the veil hung from pillar to pillar. Making a confined space, a room, a secret place. Separating the holy place from the most holy place. The Bible says, the moment he cried out, and yielded his spirit, died. Then, behold, the veil is torn from top to bottom. The earth began to shake. Rocks began to split. This was such a phenomenon that the people standing at the foot of the cross are looking at him, mocking him seconds before, minutes before, are now in awe as they look at a hanging dead Jesus, and they have revelation that he is the son of the living God. I think, I think right now, like never before, we are being offered to fight so many different things, to give our time to so many different things, to give our strength and our passion to so many, so many other things, that we find a lack in our life of that actually being applied and going into the presence of God. This is the fight I want to talk about as we pray. Why was the veil torn? If there's nothing you listen to, please listen right now. Why was the veil torn? Was God just flexing on all of us? Check me out. And he's tearing that thing from top to bottom. God just trying to, was God trying to prove a point? Was God trying to aggravate and really, really, really make some Pharisees lose their mind and tear some more clothes and put ashes on their head? Why was the veil torn? So that we would no longer be separated. I'm asking rhetorically, but it's, I love the answers. Yes. Why was the veil torn? Listen, his life built up to this moment and he knew this moment would come and this is his energy conserved he was focused he knew that this was it this is why he came in other gospels he would tell us that my father loves me because I choose to lay down my life I'm choosing to give myself for you this was the moment and of all things that could have taken place or happened, the moment he died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. I can't say this enough. The moment that he died, the veil was torn from top to bottom. The moment he breathed his last, 
and gave up his spirit. What does that mean? He said, my God has given me, my Father has given me the authority to take my life or to lay it down. And in this moment, he literally gives his life over. He gives his life over in this moment. And in the moment that he willingly gives up his life, he breathes his last. His head goes down. His arms going full length hanging. His legs going full length hanging as, it's, as he's got a nail going, going through both heels. He's totally now dead. He breathed his last. And in this moment, the veil is torn. This is the first act of God as his son dies the death on the cross. This is the first thing God wanted to make clear that my son finished what he came for and this is what I now have to say to the world. He was silent but now the moment came for the father to begin to speak. And he said with an act of tearing the veil, welcome to my presence. Welcome to my house. Welcome and come to me now. The moment he died on the cross, he opened himself to the world and he said, now you, you and you and you can come. He had no time to waste his moments and his breath and his words fighting with Pharisees. He knew they would need him too. He knew they would need salvation too. He knew they would need some mercy and some grace too. I think it is impossible to overcome the pride of life unless we come behind the veil. Unless we enter in. Each of you, each of you in his own level, in his own way, her way, are tempted in being someone. I want you to be honest. If you continue to do the things that you do for God and never got anything for it, would you continue to do it? If you continue to do the things that you do for God now and no one ever said thank you, would you continue to do it? If you continue to do the things that you do for God now and no one acknowledged you, no one recognized you, would you continue to do it? And there's nothing wrong with being honest, but I think most of us would stop doing what we are doing if people stop recognizing, recognizing what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we are. Would we still keep doing conference if 100 youth showed up? Would we keep doing youth services if it was just five of us? Would we continue to lead worship if we had no instruments? Would we, would we continue to do life group, spending the, the last money we had to buy food for our hungry life group people, to get together in some basement of a creepy house and keep serving these kids and these people if no one ever recognized or noticed what we're doing. And I think, I just, I just think, I think 
I think we might stop doing some of the things that we're doing. You know why? Because doing things for God and doing things in church doesn't set you free from the pride of life. The only thing that can set you free from the pride of life is coming into his presence and coming to know him more. There is no other way. Because what you're fighting with is something you were born into. And there's a desire in you, living in you, to be someone. The only way this can be taken care of is when you encounter someone bigger, someone more, someone better, who allows you and gives you strength and gives you revelation. And at the revelation of who he is, you be die to yourself. The only way you can be set free from the pride of life is you have to die. The only way you can die is when you step in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and you begin to seek and encounter His presence in your life. Nobody, including me, can walk into the Holy of Holies for you in your life. You will have to enter on your own. But I got good news. It was the moment He died that the veil was torn. It was the moment He died that the veil was torn. It was the moment He died. Now you died. He died that the veil was torn. It was the moment he said it's finished. Now you said it's finished. He said it's finished that the veil was torn. It was the moment that he breathed his last that the veil was torn. It was the moment that he hung that the veil was torn. It was the moment that he did everything for you to have boldness to come in to the presence of God. And he did it, not you. He did it, not you. The only way I see us going into the schools like lions is that we come into his presence like lambs. We come into his presence maybe a little bit fearful, maybe a little bit scared, but we come into his presence because we have boldness to enter because of the blood that was shed, not because of what I've done, not if I talk back to my dad or not. I have boldness to enter his presence because his blood was shed. I have boldness to enter his presence because he said it's finished, because he gave up his life, because he breathed his last, because it was him who did everything. It was him who paid the price. It was him who did it all. And I have boldness to come in to his presence. And this is the only way. Because of what he did, I come into his presence. And when I'm in his presence, because of what he did and who he is, he begins to change me. And I walked in like a little lamb into his presence. But I walk out like a lion out of his presence. I came in fearful and scared. But I, I come out with the word. I come out with identity. I come out with purpose. I come out with meaning. I was running around looking for friends. But I met my friend Jesus. And he began to speak and comfort and show me and reveal to me. And I walk out different. I walk out different. I just, I just want to maybe give you advice. Stop wasting your energy and your time in other places except there. Why am I so tired to pray? Why am I so tired to come into God's presence? Why am I, why am I so tired and exhausted to just spend some time with God? I, I think you might be wasting your time and your energy so many places that you lack it to come there. Jesus was so full that his prayer life continued on the cross. He knew.
knew God so much that being alone in the context of man, he knew that God was with him. begin to do this I think as a Christian we almost we are we're, we're almost tempted in the pride of life more than somebody in the world because when you start growing in God and being used by God you find, if you're honest, that you want to become someone. You want to be acknowledged. You want people to see, people to clap, people to say thank you. And the only solution for that, the only way we'll be able to minister to the, to the amount of students that God wants us to minister to and not be prideful and arrogant and naive is we continue to come into his presence. The only way we'll be able to do mighty and great exploits like the Bible promises is we continue to come into his presence. I'm not there yet, but I, 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 forget, the, I forget the past and I press toward the goal. I want to be in a place where my name doesn't matter, the youth's name doesn't matter, the worship team's name doesn't matter, ex-preacher's name doesn't matter, ex-evangelist doesn't matter. We are here to do what God has for us to do. If no one acknowledges us, we know why we do it. If nobody, if nobody says thank you, we know who we're pleasing and living for. If no one says, oh wow, oh my gosh, look at that, I like it, I love it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I know why I'm here. I know what I have to do. It is our responsibility now. It is our responsibility now that through our life, through one another, through this youth, through this ministry, that the name of Jesus would be lifted higher and higher and higher and higher. Worship team, you don't have to come up. You can stay right where you are so we give you a chance to pray as well. But let's just take this moment right where you are. You can, if you, if you need to, you can come to the front and kneel. Or you can kneel right where you are in your seat, from your seat. And let's just begin to, begin to cry out right now, begin to see God.